Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we will keep sharing great conversations. This is your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. You know, we often discuss what it means to be human in a world of machines, and we also discuss what innately human skills will never be automated. As you know, I'm a firm believer that being on the right side of innovation means embracing automation to make us better humans. For example, machines are great at recalling facts, but humans are much better at knowing how and when to use them. Well, today we get to explore that theme with an expert storyteller who happens to tell stories about technology, among other things. Graham Brown's an award-winning podcast host who helps others tell better stories. He's the CEO of Pickle, a full-service podcast agency for B2B clients. Graham traveled the world learning about cultures and teams, so he's also got a few opinions about the future of work. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Graham to the podcast. Graham, let's uh, let's kick things off. Share a little bit more about your very colorful background and uh, how you got into this space. Well, first, thanks for inviting me, Dan. It's great to be here. Love the podcast as well, especially this topic. This is right in the sights of what I find really fascinating about where we're going, not just future, but history as well. I think you've got to understand the bigger picture here. I'm a storyteller, as you say, and uh, you know I think it's one of those things when you're a kid, your mom would scold you for being a storyteller. Stop telling stories, Dan. That was always sort of synonymous with lying, wasn't it? But as you grow older, you realize that actually storytelling isn't a fabrication, but a really powerful tool in business, in general life. It's a way of communicating. It's a way of influencing. It's a way of engaging people without stories or the ability to tell stories. Really, there's little to differentiate us from machines. So increasingly what's happening now, Dan, is in the B2B space, especially companies, leaders are asking, how do we tell stories? And for them, it's, well, I know once upon a time, but they have to kind of understand how to take all that, what they've learned, you know, from kindergarten, what's natural and what they've been exposed to, and then package that and put it into a business context. So that's what I help them do. And it's, it sounds easy, but the hard part is, you know, vulnerability is standing up there and telling something about yourself. And that is hard if you spent your whole life doing the complete opposite, which is, you know, being the polished, efficient leader. So this is the challenge we're in. And this really falls into that space of the future of work, because this is a skill that people increasingly need to have and is missing in their resumes. I'm fond of saying anything that can be predicted is better left to machines, but anything mm. that requires judgment or emotion is better left to humans. What, do you, what would you say is the art of great storytelling that will never be replaced by machines? Yeah, well, you know, stories have been around for thousands of years, haven't they? And you go way back to the epics of Gilgamesh or even those original 
cave paintings you see in the south of France, which they, they date to 20, 25,000 years ago. You know, you've got the stories of the, the animal stampedes. There's actually, if you look at the ones in Lascaux, which are in the southwest of France, these sort of, I think they're sort of 26,000 BC, so prehistory. They've got the pictures of like the buffalo stampedes. But at the bottom, there's like a really fascinating um, sort of, I, I don't know if it's done deliberately, but there's like a pair of child's hands. It's like female hands. They must be about six years old, five years old. And she's put like a handprint on the wall whilst they're doing these paintings. And you think that was 20, 30,000 years ago. But a, a child today would do the same. If you gave her a paint pot, she would put her hands in it and put it on the wall. And that's probably a very basic form of storytelling. It's a very human act. If you think about what is it that we do when we tell stories, effectively, we are trying to connect with people. We are trying to convey, we're trying to engage, and we're trying to influence people with outcomes favorable to us. And really, you know, the art of storytelling, it's not a mystery. You know, you could go and watch Avengers, you know, or Marvel, any, any of the Marvel stories, and you see a plot line that has been around for thousands of years. You know, it's not original. You see Harry Potter, you see Lord of the Rings, you see Star Wars. They're the same. Everyone has the same plot line. And the, the irony is, is we don't walk out of the movie theater and think, hey, God damn, that was the same as Harry Potter. And I feel, you know, I've been tricked. We, we actually want that. We want familiar storylines. We want, you know, if you read Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, he talks about the, the hero with a thousand faces. You know, they, we have these familiar archetypes that appear in culture and myth and business and story, you know, whether it's the the wizened old, you know, the, the, the wizard with the gray beard, the Gandalf or the Obi-Wan type figure or the accidental hero, you know, the Hobbit or Luke or whoever it is. These are archetypes that perpetuate throughout history. And to tell good stories is to understand that stories have these established plot lines, which are accepted. They've been validated to talk about, you know, in startup parlance, you know, they've been validated through thousands of years. And if you understand how stories work, they have a science in them, which is that there are familiar plot lines we've been using, which engage audiences. So Steve Jobs was a great um, utilizer of these plot lines. When he launched the iPhone, for example, he used the familiar accidental hero narrative, which is that you know we didn't choose events, events chose us, which is every single sort of hero monomyth for thousands of years. And that works really well. And whether he was doing it consciously or he just had a good feel for storytelling, it goes to show the power of being able to communicate through existing narrative structures. And that is really storytelling. And the great thing is, is once you see it, you can use it. The flip side of that, Dan, is when you're sitting there with your wife watching a movie, you'll spoil every single movie you're sitting there because you say, oh, this is what happens next. And you've seen it before, obviously. So I warn you, that's what happens once you start looking at everything. You start to see it everywhere. Those cave paintings at Lascaux are every bit as sophisticated and as beautiful as anything that was ever painted by da Vinci or Michelangelo. I, I, well, I yeah. love those images that, that you evoked and the hands and the, 
the you know the, the, the maternal figures that's uh, uh since chills down my spine i i couldn't agree more but it connects us doesn't it There's, yeah that, doesn't it connect us with them they're like timeless 30 it's incredible Thirty thousand years ago we're connected with their humanity Absolutely. you could imagine it you see the scene don't you like how it happens and that that's you're, incredible really it's, it's like you're there absolutely now you're talking to an audience of uh of entrepreneurs and technologists and every day uh they're telling stories and maybe they're telling a story to a customer or maybe they're telling a story to an investor uh, what are the things that they should know about reading an audience and what are some of the things that you see aspiring storytellers get wrong the first time. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of, especially entrepreneurs live by storytelling, but are unaware of it. Think about if you're a founder, let's say, and you've been in this situation, you know, raising funds, hiring, selling, it's all storytelling really, isn't it? Like when you raise funds, it's, you're trying to get somebody to invest in an idea something that hasn't happened yet. And if you're hiring, it's the same, like leave your comfortable job in the bank and join this highly risky startup, which isn't making any money. That's storytelling. Cause what you're trying to do effectively. And if we look at the science of storytelling, the human brain can't distinguish between past and future. It doesn't know the difference. It doesn't have a section of the brain specifically for past and one for the future imagination it's all the same it's all experience so what a story effectively does is connect an experience we've had in the past or experience we've seen experience we've felt with a an outcome we haven't yet experienced so that's why it's a very powerful way of convincing people about future outcomes that are unknown by linking them to what we already know that's the science, put it into context. Let's think about, go back a couple of years when the pandemic was just happening and everybody was trying to make sense of everything. And one of the things people um, started floating around was this idea of flattening the curve. And you, you, as soon as I say that, you'll probably visualize that curve that everybody saw from that article. And it's, it's a really good example of what I call data storytelling which is that, you know, you can imagine if somebody tried to explain that concept in data and explain the data, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. But flattening the curve spread to hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, the idea because of the story, flattening the curve is a story because it shows movement, it shows change, it shows what we need to do. There are heroes and villains inside that data. And you may not think of it as a story, but in fact, it is. It's a way of getting people to understand information that they don't yet have experience of by linking it to what we already know. And a, another great example of that is, and more tangible, is a map. If you think about a map, you know, the world is the earth is a 3D sphere. But if you think it, when we see it on the wall, it's a 2D rendition. And people never look at that and thinking, how do you take, you know, a four by three piece of paper and make it into a, a 3D sphere? It's, in, it's physically impossible, no matter how you do it, right? And a map is a representation. And that's the point is that we don't challenge it. We accept that that is the world 
and that's how I see the world. And it just so happens that, you know, you've got like New York and London and sort of the, the main sort of axis of the world, if you like, that sort of shows how we see the world, right? And if you flip that, and this is what people don't realize when it comes to, you know, if you're an entrepreneur communicating, it's just how important these frames are for what you're doing. If you flip a map on its head, there's a, there's a map, I don't know if you've seen this, Dan, called the South Up Map. Have you seen this thing? You can Google this thing. There's a, it's, it's a South Up map. It basically, it's the world, but flipped on its head. If you show it to somebody and they'll say, well, it's upside down. It's, that's not, the earth is upside down. Well, the earth isn't upside down because in space, there is no up and no down, right? That's the reality of the physics of space. And then they will say, well, but the compass points north. And well, the reality is it doesn't point north. It points north and south again, like, you know, that sort of basic physics. And they say, well, you know, the red part is pointing north. Well, that's some guy years ago actually painted it red. Actually, the original Chinese compasses used to point south, interestingly. Anyway, but that's aside. But that's your job as an entrepreneur. Your job is to create a map for your audience because without the map, they don't know where to go. You're giving them data, you're giving them ideas, you're giving them things they're unfamiliar with. And you're saying, we need to go here. Your job is to create that worldview for them to understand. And I think there's a sort of a naivety that people will see the world as it is. They will consume your data, your, you know, your sort of startup pitch deck for what it is. You know, it's a great idea, but people don't buy that. They buy the journey you're taking them on. They buy that sort of whole narrative that they're familiar with. And that is really important because without it, everything is really naked. And you can see the power of it, everything from a map to public health initiatives, how it works. I'm going to get on a soapbox and say the future of work favors those who cultivate these innately human skills in a world that increasingly will rely on the fusion of humans and machines. If you believe that hypothesis, what do you tell your son or my daughters or, hmm. you know, kids out there who are thinking about the skills that they should be cultivating today to be not just great storytellers, but to really embrace this future of work in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I have a 15 year old son. So this is the conversation that's happening now. It's interesting when you talk about it in these terms, and then you're having that conversation over dinner and trying to keep it relevant. You know, maybe he doesn't understand storytelling. I mean, he understands what it is, but he doesn't understand why he needs it. But he understands the skills that he needs. I mean, he's into games, like most teenage boys are, and interested in, for example, the, the whole publishing process of games. And so for him, it's, okay, what is the purpose of him going to university, for example? That's the question that's coming up now. For you and I, Dan, that was never an option, I'm sure, to have that conversation with our parents. It was like the only option. I'm sure, you know, if you go back 20 years or so, you wouldn't have the option not to go to university. That was seen as a failure. But now it's, it's, I think it's an option for the next generation. And therefore, they need to learn skills, which necessarily they're not teaching at university. 
Because, you know, I, I believe that the education system models society. It's an industrial model. It's the factory model of education designed to create factory workers. And a factory worker doesn't necessarily mean, you know, making widgets. It could be a lawyer. It could be a doctor. It could be factory workers in a factory model. We haven't yet fully understood what the next model is. I know we talk about the new normal, but the skills they're going to need are the ones which you say, you know, aren't rational, aren't predictable. It's the very human skills. You know, if you think about the factory model, was it, it's an era of efficiency, isn't it? It's Henry Ford. It's, you know, you can have any color as long as it's black. Well, he chose black paint because it dried faster. That's the, the reality, right? And if you think about that model, the, the least efficient part of the model was the human being. That's why, I mean, when you go to McDonald's, the customer is always right because the employee is always wrong. That's the mantra, isn't it? The last part is implied. And the peak efficiency that we've now experienced will expose our need for these new skills. You know, we don't want people, we don't want more efficiency. Efficiency isn't yielding any kind of value to us beyond a certain point now. And beyond peak efficiency, we want authenticity. You know, people are talking about being authentic and being vulnerable and humanizing brands, empathy. These are skills 10 years ago, which you never would have talked about, never even knew what the meanings were. So these are the skills that people will need, the skills that you cannot scale, the skills that machines cannot do yet. And they can pretty much do most things, but they can't, um, you know, they can't tell stories, they can't be authentic, they can't be vulnerable, they can't write a love song because even though they have access to billions of data sets, a machine's never been rejected by a girl or a boy. You know, a machine's never felt like it's weird as a teenager and therefore it can't do it from a position of pain or authenticity, which really makes it believable. That's why, you know, when a CEO stands up and says, Oh, you know, we're in trouble. You believe it. If you believe in that person, a machine could never do that because it can never come from that position of vulnerability. And we're only really understanding it. I'm curious to know what you think, Dan, is that, you know, from your conversations, when people talk about vulnerability and authenticity in the future of work and these new skills, what exactly are they? Because I don't think we've yet had the proper discussion, though it hasn't made it yet to the world of business literature exactly what these things are. Skills to me that are timeless and that, you know, I would encourage my, my kids. I'm a little bit behind your, your 15 year old son. My girls are 14 and 12 and things that I want them to do or learn what they're passionate about. And mm. I want them to invest themselves in a cause so important to them that they're willing to give everything to see it succeed. And to me, it's that passion, that thirst for knowledge, the creativity, the desire to make other people around you better, that makes us different from machines. Mm. And we can talk about GPT-3 and large language models, that's not intelligence. And so I always advocate on this show that 
the A in AI, it's not artificial. It's about augmenting the intelligence hmm. of humans. Anything that's fact-based or can be recalled, leave that to machine learning. But anything that requires empathy or judgment or creativity, that's what people are for. Hmm. And we always, we always will be better at machines. We're the, the only species that have the ability to cultivate, to hone that craft. And, you know, that's what I always, you know, encourage my daughters. It's not about to get a technical degree or a liberal arts degree. Those are, those are artificial constructs made up by the educational institution. It's really about finding something you're, you're passionate about and loving mm. it and living it and defining a, you know, a career, a persona, a life around that thing. So yeah, I, I love that idea of augmented intelligence. It's very okay. true. We need to understand yeah intelligence in itself and you know what and again it's more of a sort of a, a question to ourselves and understand what it means to be human we never really i suppose you know it's full circle going back to the greek philosophers you know a lot of thoughts about what what we are and why we're here and like you talk about the passion and the, the really the why for your daughters as well you know they've got to discover that yeah it's uh i remember a quote by carl sagan and he said, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you've got to first invent the universe. I think we're there. <laughs> I think, you know, if you want to understand intelligence, you, you've got to, sorry, if you want to understand AI, if you want to understand the future of work, you've got to understand humanity and intelligence as well. You know, work isn't work for work's sake. It, it has a purpose. And therefore, you know, asking questions like, you know, what are my daughters going to do? What, what are they passionate about? These are not existential first world questions. These are the what if questions that we need to ask and everybody needs to ask. And it's only sort of, you know, I think in the last couple of years, there's been this slight wrinkle in the fabric of, you know, the work universe that people have actually seen for a very short time, maybe an alternate reality. They've started to ask questions like why am i doing this you know the great resignation is a theme now right and hopefully these con conversations like with your podcast and will continue rather than just sort of fade away like you know the memories of the virus like oh that was the 2020s hopefully we can keep these conversations going and people can ask these what if questions which you know it, they may be uncomfortable why do this job? Why go to university? Why do a liberal arts degree or a technical degree? You know, why are we doing this? What is the purpose of work and even school? And these are the sort of examine questions that may annoy people, but they're necessary. The modern day uh, equivalent of you know the the employer, the labor, the employee or the laborer who fears that AI will take their job. It's the you know it's the luddite from you know the 18th century who feared machines there's always been some idea that technology or some externality some you know external thing will make people obsolete but to be on the right side of innovation means embracing these changes and continuing to ask questions about like you said what it what does it mean to be human and i flip that argument about you know the bot apocalypse on its head and i say what would happen if in literally within a decade, if technology gave you back an hour a day, say mm. you make the same salary, but you have an hour back a day, 
12 and a half percent of your life back. Who are you then? How can you be a better spouse, a better friend, a better parent? What's that passion that you have that's latent, that's fighting to get out? Well, just imagine that within a decade, thanks to technology, you're going to have an opportunity to pursue that thing that makes you the best version of yourself. That's the future of work to me. That's the role that AI is playing. Mm, that's the vision that we hope to work towards. I want to just briefly go back to your point about the Luddite stand, because I think that was really important, especially for your listeners. Because when we think of Luddites, we think of sort of semi-intelligent, slightly reactive people who smash machines. But the reality with Luddites was is that they were actually highly skilled artisans. The Luddites were weavers. And if you go back to the 17th and 18th century, which is pre-industrial revolution, and this is the important, you know, the last in real industrial revolution. I know we've had four, and this, some people talk about AI as the fourth industrial revolution. But if you go back to the first one, the Luddites smashing the machines, well, the, if you were a weaver, the, a weaver was pretty much the most highly skilled and highly paid job you could have had unless you were born as a you know landed gentry or some kind of you know uh, priest some you know privileged position that's as good as you got so it was a highly skilled professional job and if you were a weaver then you could work three days a week you could spend the rest of the week off you would, could own a freehold land you weren't in debt your your own man. You could look after a family and feed them. And that was a highly privileged position for somebody who was born, um, you know, not into privilege. And if you think about it, that, that role, that profession is very similar to, uh, for example, a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant today. It's highly skilled, highly educated. You could pass it from generation to generation. And interestingly, when the you know the reasons why the weavers smashed the looms was because they were automating their work and you know they had a good reason to it in fact they they smashed so many looms that you could actually be hanged if you smashed a loom they invented you know they in, in, introduced these sort of capital punishments for loom smashing and that's how the luddites you know got their sort of myth if you like but the interesting thing what happened to the luddites and the, the weavers they were pushed into factories and they went from highly skilled professionals, educated, to cheap factory workers within a generation because of the mechanical loom, because of automation, because of the industrial revolution. And people see that and think, that's what happens. That is AI. That is the next generation. All these people being pushed into the equivalents of factories, the gig economy, whatever it is, and turned into cheap workers. Well, there's a second part to the story that doesn't get told, and that is that all that cloth, that textile that they were creating for the cities, for the, the burgeoning middle classes had to be sold. You know, they're creating these patterns and tablecloths. And, you know, a tablecloth back then was the equivalent of a Tesla. You know, it was a sign of leisure and materialism. If you had a tablecloth, it meant people came to your house. If people came to your house, it, you were important. You had leisure time. You had money to spend on China you know, and like tea. So these were important artifacts that needed selling. 
and to sell them. We didn't have a system of selling this kind of stuff before. So they needed to create a new industry and that industry was retail. And at the same time, all this automation was happening that the Luddites were pushed into the factory. This new industry was being created. And we were seeing this shift from mechanical, mechanized work to this human touch. You know, you needed to tell stories to sell patterned textiles to middle class women. And so, you know, if, if you look at the fourth industrial revolution where we are in the future of work, again, we're seeing this shift from effectively what is spreadsheet based work to storytellers. You know, if you're an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor and your work can be done, like you say, Dan, predictably, if it's about filling spreadsheets in a very glorious way, then machines will do that. And it won't be the low skilled workers that get decimated because they're all, they're, they're highly agile. They can evolve, then find some other kind of work. It's the guys who spent 10 years getting educated that are going to get wiped out. It's the doctors and the accountants and the lawyers. They'll be wiped out by an algorithm, which is the scary part because they're the least agile of all. And it's the new industries that will form the storytellers, but the, the next equivalent of retail, whatever that is, that human touch that will really be the skills that we need to educate people with. Yeah. I, I had an opportunity to uh, spend a semester in college in, in England and I was studying Luddism and the highlight of my semester was every Saturday morning at the crack of dawn, 6am I'd be up and I'd get on a train to go someplace that nobody else had ever heard of. But to me, these were meccas, these old <laughs> industrial centers where you'd get off the train and there'd be nothing but, you know, a vending machine and a platform and a and a dilapidated old factory and How you cool can just that? you can just hear these walls tell stories you know they're 250 year old stories about the industrial revolution and you, you just start to you know imagine what it would have been like to be one of those laborers mm. and to be displaced and to reinvent yourself and to you know be, become you know a, a wage earner in in retail or something else and there's just no no more fulfilling experience as a technologist to be mm. in a place that was you know really saw the the birth of you know the the you know what you think is the antithesis of of uh, of, of technology where machines were broken <laughs> but you see kind of the rebuilding or the creation of this culture around revering technology kind of you know uh, rising up from the ashes of these old factories wow yeah that's the part about history, isn't it? We can understand the future. Yeah. It, effectively, it's a transfer of value, isn't it? From one group of people in society yeah. to another. It's not destroyed. So I, that's being on the right side of it is key here, right? I, I've got to ask, I'm fascinated by your, your background. I know you've traveled a lot and you, you know, you're a deep thinker about the future of work and about technology. Pick one of the places that you've been and tell us about the culture and any kind of, you know, thoughts about the future of work that you learn from being in that culture that maybe, you know, is one that our listeners aren't familiar with. Wow. So many, so little time, but that's like life, isn't it? And travel generally. Um, well, I spent a lot of time in Japan. I lived in Japan in the nineties the post bubble, which was a very exciting time. If you're growing up and you were, you know, you were, I mean, I graduated with an AI degree 
funnily enough, in 95 when nobody knew what that was useful for. So I was sent out to teach English in Japan, which was sort of, you know, like the world, the new world in the 90s. It was still Sony and Toshiba and TDK, all these sort of exciting brands, which really were the future. And the the sort of transformation of Japan to today is is a number of things about it we can learn about the future of work. You know, it was in some ways like the Chinese economy today. It was, you know, turning out incredible growth in its GDP. It was producing amazing innovations. And yet fundamentally inside the heart of it was this inflexibility to change that, you know, um, it, it couldn't, because of its success, it couldn't learn how to you know, adapt to an, a new model. And a part of it was demographics as well. I mean, I went to, um, down in the south of Japan on the island of Kyushu, um, the city of Fukuoka is sort of the designated startup city of Japan. And it's sort of, you know, if you think about the geography of the US, you've got New York and the Valley, they're sort of as far apart as possible, aren't they, physically on the mainland. And it's the same with um, Japan. It's like you've got Tokyo and Fukuoka. They're almost like in a similar kind of geographical positioning. And I was down there at this startup hub and I walked into this building, which was where they had all these startups housed. And I thought, this looks a bit familiar. And you walk in and I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Japanese school and they, they have the first thing you'll hit as you walk in is just all these kind of cubby holes where you put all your slippers in and your shoes. And, you know, there's like hundreds of them because there's hundreds of kids, but there were no kids there anymore. It was just all sort of the startup founders' shoes. And then you walk in and you walk around and the whole place is a school. And then you realize that actually there used to be children here and now there are startups. And nobody's sort of really thinking about it. And I'm thinking it's a little bit strange because there's a whole generation of kids that aren't there anymore because like, you know, the Japanese are demographics, the, you know, they're going to lose 40 million people in the next 30 years because there are no children anymore, literally. You know, you can walk around and you see this complete change. And what that does for work is it creates this hardening of mindsets. As you get older, you're less flexible to change. But you need that young generation to challenge. You need, you know, when Japan was flying, it was because there were young people. You know, the families were like three kids. And they were, you know, challenging the way of doing things and they were driving innovation. And I think you see it there that the future of work really lies with the young. That the problem with us old people is that we have experience. And the young people are, you know, they're the ones that get on TikTok. They're the ones that, you know, are happy to build their personal brand because it's natural to them. Because they realize they have to do that to get ahead now. Whereas old people are like, oh, no, I can't do that because what if I make a mistake or, you know, that's the challenge that we have. And I think, you know, you see in Japan that dynamic playing out, that without young people, there is no change because that's what they do. They change things and they challenge things. And that's why we need them. And for us in work, it's to see what young people are doing and learn from them, whether that's inside your workplace or actually just observing how young people are using media today. I think that's really something that we need to get better at. I love that metaphor. Startups really are barefoot children, right? Yeah. And, and they're, you know, they're, it's, it's messy and it's beautiful. 
and and you know they're 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 constantly striving you know to uh to become that perfect version of themselves and to grow up and they're learning and they're they're getting bruised knees and mm. that's Finance. part of the experience right of uh you know of, of growing up as a child growing up as a startup so uh gosh i think we uh we came full circle and uh, yeah wow this this one's been so much fun graham i really uh we're just getting started. I, I hope. Is that uh, time, Dan? Let's gone so fast. I, you know, I, it uh, it feels like we're just getting started. I, would you yeah. please take up, take me up on the offer? Will you come back and can we continue yeah. where we left off? Let's do a part two. We just so much absolutely. we haven't talked about. We you know we haven't talked about future of work and healthcare, future of work, and I just want to leave your audience with a, a thought, if I may, Dan. Is that please. something you mentioned? And I wanted to say it at the time, but we didn't have time. Like for your audience, when they think about this change, never forget that a computer used to be a human being. Not many people know that. A computer used to be a, like a clerk or a clerk, as you say, on your side of the Atlantic, almost, almost like an accountant, you know, in the 17th, 18th century. Think about that. Well, Graham, uh, this has really been so much fun. And mm. uh, we have so much more to still learn from you. So we're going to have you back. Just great work and uh, wish you all the best of luck and look, uh, look forward to having the next version of this conversation. Dan, thank you. Wonderful host. Love your podcast and can't wait to see how this turns out. Well, uh, this is your host, Dan Turchin uh, of AI and the Future of Work, uh, signing off for this week. But uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>